This is Hotwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. Hubwonk is a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a Boston-based policy think tank. Each week, I'll bring you conversations with thought leaders who are working to make our lives better in Massachusetts. We have launched Hubwonk in April 2020 amid the challenges of a pandemic. The coronavirus has made public health top of mind for everyone. In this episode, we will talk with Dr. Roy Schoenberg, President and Chief Executive of Amwell where a decade ago, he introduced the technology that brokers on-demand telehealth visits between patients and providers. Roy is the 2014 recipient of the American Telemedicine Association Industry Award for Leadership in the field of telemedicine. He's an avid author and speaker in the areas of healthcare technology and health IT policy. Roy serves on the board of the American Telemedicine Association, holds an MD from Hebrew University, and a Master of Public Health from Harvard. Joining me from Pioneer, is Josh Archambault, Senior Healthcare Fellow. Josh will share his perspective on the promises and challenges of telemedicine, describe what he sees as best practices for policymakers working to encourage its adoption. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Thanks, Joe, so much for having me back. So Josh, what would you like to hear from or ask Dr. Roy Schoenberg today? You know, what I'm really interested in hearing from him is what have they learned in this time period of explosion of interest in utilization of telehealth? And then I ultimately want to hear him talk a little bit about what does telehealth look like in five or 10 years for a patient when they interact with the healthcare system? Yes, good questions. Uh, And particularly in this time of COVID-19, telehealth has a a special relevance and uh, necessity. Uh, So I'm looking forward to our conversation. So after the break, we'll return with Dr. Roy Schomburg of Amwell. Okay, we are back. This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi, with Pioneer Fellow Josh Archambault. We're now joined by Dr. Roy Schoenberg, CEO of Amwell. Welcome to the show, Roy. Thank you for having me, Joe and Josh. Before we start our discussion on Amwell and telemedicine and telehealth, I'd like to learn more about what brought you to Boston in the first place. Well, I was I was born in another country. I was born in Israel, and uh, I used to be a practicing physician, and was always intrigued about the the mix between technology and, and clinical work. And it was that early time, you know, many many years ago, past century, <laughs> where a, a certain university in Boston introduced a a program for clinicians to begin to work in the interface between technology and and clinical work, it was the only one at the time. Um, And when they said, hey, we have a spot for you, I picked up my luggage and came over. You don't say no to that kind of university. So uh, that's what brought me here. Roy, tell us the reason you started Amwell. Sure. You know, the the short version, there's, of course, many war stories around this, but uh, I would say, you know, Amwell is the, the, the third company that my brother and I, he's also a clinician, founded together. Um, the beginning of Amwell was really kind of at the end of or kind of the, the conclusion of the previous company, where this was millions of years ago. It was all about patient portals that were all the hype at the beginning of the, the 21st century. Um, especially with the arrival of HIPAA, which is a federal regulation that governs patient data confidentiality. 
Um, so we had, you know, that previous company, that early company did patient portals, a lot of health plans liked it, they deployed it, it was a very favorable outcome for the company. But the one thing that we kind of noticed is that where people were very interested in going online about their healthcare, their interest waned after a very, very short period of time. They could read a lot, they could do things like health risk assessments, but they weren't really getting satisfied that this was a meaningful part of their healthcare. And the beginning of Mwell, you know, kind of the conclusion of that previous company was, what's missing? And the, the, the kind of simplistic answer to that question was, well, you know, in, in travel, you know, you buy an airline ticket. That's the good that you use in order to, to do stuff. And you download the show or you trade your stock or you, you know, you buy on Amazon or whatever it is. You can actually get stuff done. In healthcare, to most people, get stuff done means getting in front of a doctor. And at the time that we started Amwell, that was not possible. It was all about reading articles and, you know, doing a, a WebMD kind of stuff. So we started Amwell with the notion that maybe it's time for us to create a technology for healthcare that will be as transactional as what other industries have implemented in their respective business lines. And that's really what started Amwell. Tell us a little bit more about what was the impetus to shift to a telehealth company? So the, the, the start of Amwell was back in 2006. Um, and, and just to give people reference of how, how millions of years ago that is, um, we rolled out the first telehealth product where you can actually, you know, log in and, and click a button and the system will match you with a live physician to see. We rolled that product at the same month that Apple rolled out the iPhone. So this gives you a sense of how ancient we are. Um, but the, and, and the first, you know, the, the, the story of that first rollout was that, you know, it was at the time very difficult to persuade people that you can actually deliver healthcare safely over technology for a lot of different reasons. And our first client at the time was Blue Cross Blue Shield of Hawaii, where if you've ever visited Hawaii, you know, there's a lot of different islands, but most of the high-end kind of the, the, the comprehensive healthcare is on one island in Honolulu. And they were, they were struggling with, you know, flying patients around between the islands. And they said, well, you know, if we want to actually democratize good healthcare to people who live in the respective different islands, we've got to use technology to do that. So they had an urgent need, a very, very direct need um, that without a technological solution, it's much harder for people to get healthcare. So they trusted that to roll it out. And now in hindsight, you know, 13, 14 years later, you know, this is, uh, you know, this comes as almost commoditized, you know, telehealth these days. Uh, but this is how it all started. It was Blue Cross Blue Shield of Hawaii. I have to give them the credit for the foresight. So, so we have a great origin story. Uh, as you say, it was the stone age of technology back uh, when the, the right. iPhone was born. Uh, for our listeners, uh, bring us up to the modern day. What does telehealth and telemedicine look like in 2020? Right. So the, um, you know, things have changed in a very, very big way. I think the, you know, the, the better definition of telehealth today is the ability to distribute healthcare over technology. It comes in, it comes in a lot of shapes and sizes and, you know, there are different products and different vendors and different types of healthcare, behavioral health and urgent care <clears throat> and follow-up care. Um, but I think the understanding 
that we're very quickly moving into a world where part of the relationship that that we as patients have with the healthcare system are going to be carried out over technology is where the where the telehealth operation exists. You know, it took about 10 years, I would say roughly about 10 years, to convince the respective parties that are involved in healthcare, the clinicians, the medical boards, the health insurance companies, the regulators, you know, at the government, at the state level, at the federal level, that this is okay. But um, we kind of turned the corner about three or four years ago, and now the conversation is no longer about is it safe, is it okay, is it good quality, is it saving money, is it making it more convenient and more humane for people to get healthcare? That conversation is pretty much kind of in the, in the, in the rear view mirror. Now the conversation is where else can we use it? You know, can we rethink the way we care for cancer patients who are living with chemotherapy for two years in their home? And can we make the kind of all of the different elements of healthcare that they need come to them rather than force them to kind of run around between care points? Can we rethink how long people need to stay in the hospital after surgery if we can actually discharge them to their home where they want to be and actually check up on them you know, maybe every couple of hours through telehealth. Can we rethink how we uh, deliver healthcare in places that admittedly are disadvantaged from getting advanced healthcare? You know, if you if you have a complex cancer care and you're in North Dakota, you're not going to be as privileged as if you are in New York City or Boston. Can we make the knowledge that exists in one side of the country be delivered through technology into the hands of a clinician in North Dakota so they can better care or more effectively care for their cancer patient? I mean, there's a whole world that is now opening up the moment people really embrace the notion that technology will mobilize healthcare. And that's a, it's a fascinating time, you know, to be in telehealth uh, because all of this is happening. Yeah, it certainly is given the, the headlines. And for those of us that tend to read a lot of news, we've seen a number of headlines about this is telehealth's moment as we're facing this pandemic. Take us behind the curtain a little bit. I'd love to hear what have you learned through this process? What, what has COVID-19 been like? What has usage been like? How have you tried to adjust as a result of this being quote unquote telehealth's moment where maybe even more of the general public is aware of products like yours or how to use these sorts of services. You know, so there's a lot of different statistics that have come out of the last five weeks. Um, I think the one that is probably the most compelling is that um, we have seen uh, roughly over the first week and a half of this, we have seen the use of telehealth broadly on our system jump 30-fold, 3,000%. And, um, you know, just to kind of clarify this, a lot of different systems out there, whether they're telehealth or others, are always built to handle peaks and valleys in supply and demand, whether you are a supermarket change or a highway system or an airport, it doesn't really matter. And usually the benchmark is you want to be you want to be able to handle about double of the volume, you know, 20 percent, 30 percent, 50, 80, 100 percent increase in the volume. We're talking here about 30 times the volume. And I will spare you all of the the nights and weekends that went into how do you even begin to adapt 
to that kind of change that's happening so fast. And the adaptation came in, you know, in a lot of different fronts. There was obviously, you know, a technology adaptation, just the number, the sheer number of servers and bandwidth and video lines and, and load balance. And I can go on and on about all of these kind of, you know, technology heuristics that had to be adapted to deal with, with that volume. All of the integration channels with prescribing systems, with scheduling systems, with, you know, with provider, with eligibility systems had to be upped but but then you know it came down to the very very basic stuff like how do you get enough physicians on the system you know you have such an enormous amount of demand you need to get very quickly you know roughly an order of magnitude more clinicians come in and these were other challenges because not only that you need to reach out to those clinicians and that was work with, that was done with with the White House, with HHS, with the government agencies to tell clinicians who, by the way, are also stuck at home, many of them, to that they can be available to, you know, to the American people through technology and kind of bring them in. And then you have to automatically enroll them and you have to automatically check that they're in good standing by licensure and credentialing. And then you have to train them very quickly. And then no matter what you do, when you have 30 times the number of, and I'm saying this is in, in a fond way, newbies, whether they are patients or whether they're physicians who are using the system for the very first time, they're going to have newbie kind of questions and experiences and, you know, oh, I don't know that how, how do I use the headset, you know, for that. Uh, so the support infrastructure had to kind of catapult into a whole different kind of level of operation. Um, and, uh, you know, to kind of kind of wrap this up to, you know, to your question, um, the last couple of, you know, four or five weeks have been all about literally jumping that order of magnitude in terms of all of these facets of operating telehealth. We are in a very good place now. I can tell you there were dark hours four weeks ago, but we're, you know, in a much, much better place today. And the one thing, you know, even if the COVID volume is going to diminish, we all hope that it's going to diminish. We all hope the norm is going to come back. The one thing that you will never be able to take away is the fact that all of these millions of people, both patients and providers, have now been exposed in a very favorable way to the power of telehealth and what it can bring them. And that is something, you know, like the the Garden of Eden story, you know, once you bite into the apple and you have that epiphany of how the world works, you can't take that away. So that is the irreversible change that is going to be with us for many, many years post-COVID. You uh, talk about this wonderful tipping point or inflection point. Uh, you are an international company uh, headquartered here in Boston, but an international company, and this is a global pandemic. So uh, we have patients everywhere. We have doctors everywhere. How does the U.S. in general or Massachusetts in particular compare with the rest of the world? Are we indeed the hub of the universe here in Massachusetts or uh, is is the uptake of global uh, telehealth um, more or less universal? So I think the, you know, healthcare, we found out, healthcare is a very, very <clears throat> culturally specific business. The way healthcare is done in the UK with the NHS is very different than the way it's done here in the, you know, in the US with commercial insurance. And the truth is it's different everywhere. And one of the challenges of telehealth is that if telehealth is going to be more than just video conferencing, telehealth is going to be really another channel for care delivery, 
it has to speak all of these local heuristics. It has to understand what defines a patient and how a patient is affiliated with a physician and who's covering, you know, who's paying for that healthcare. So I would say that the, there's an overall understanding, and we see this you know, very, very clearly, there is an overall understanding of the role of telehealth in each and every one of the different countries that are fighting with COVID today. But the way that telehealth is being applied is a little bit different in each and every one of them. Um, and I think we're going to see um, different opportunities for telehealth surfacing in those different economies. You know, there's gonna be a telehealth that's introduced by government agencies in countries where it's government sponsored. There's gonna be telehealth that's gonna be offered by the electronic health record systems when it is a commercial entity that wants to offer telehealth. Obviously, a lot of telehealth is gonna offer is gonna be offered by large insurers, whether they are the Anthem Uniteds of the world or whether they are the Medicare of the world and how that's gonna work. Um, and there's going to be, like everything else, there's going to be private ventures who are going to offer very accessible, highly sophisticated telehealth to people who are willing to pay for it. And, and that's just part of life. You know, that's true in every economy, in every culture. Uh, but one thing that is unanimous across the board is that telehealth is going to be part of care delivery forever. So it sounds as if uh, your immediate goal is to make sure you get your technology to as many people as possible. But I hear in your, your answer, you want to democratize this technology. You don't want it to be exclusively the, uh, uh, the uh, used for those with the resources. So um, we are a policy podcast. I'd like to know, in broad terms, which uh, policy, state and federal, and perhaps international policies uh, can encourage a smoother or quicker or more universal uptake of what your firm and others like it might offer? Sure. So I would say, you know, some of these policy changes have actually been uh, invoked during the COVID, you know, uh, emergency. The question is when, you know, if and when they're going to be kind of retracted, which is which is something that can happen. I would say that three things, especially in the U.S., which I think is where we're most, you know, uh, uh, intertwined into policymaking, a couple of things. First of all, the, the understanding that digital services don't stop at the state line, which is, you know, obvious to us in every other industry, but is actually not true when it comes to healthcare. The understanding that skill sets that are available in the state of New York can be very helpful to people in the state of Michigan or North Dakota or California in cases where a certain area of the country either doesn't have them or is overwhelmed, like what we saw in Washington State, in New York City, in Louisiana, you know, in COVID. So, there has to be a better mechanism that will allow us to load balance healthcare resources that we have around the country using telehealth. That translates into changes in the way we look at licensure, physician licensure, that changes how we look at credentialing um, and potentially how we look at, at payment uh, when it comes to, um, you know, to government programs. So licensure is a very big change when it comes to telehealth that's gonna, that's gonna happen. Um, the second thing that, that I would say is um, and I'm, I, I don't mind. I don't mind if this sounds as a, as a criticism. Um, telehealth has been really privy, has been kind of the privilege of people who are younger than the age of 65. Um, most commercial health insurance companies have gone far, far much more forward in terms of using telehealth technology 
uh, as a benefit to their to their member population, but Medicare to some degree less Medicaid, but Medicare for the most part. Uh, policy was we're going to only cover telehealth for this one, two, three CPT codes. So, and there's, by the way, a 200-page book of regulations that you have to read before you even submit that CPT code if you're a physician uh, or a health system. Um, and the challenge with that is not only uh, not only that that's fiscally conservative to a point that is really damaging, but the reality is that the biggest value of telehealth is for the people who are challenged from getting health care. And like it or not, when you are over the age of 65, that is when a couple of really challenging health conditions surface. That's usually where chronic conditions come in. That's when usually coming out of your, you know, getting out of bed and going to get health care is getting more difficult for you. Sometimes the economical struggles that you have when you get to that age point, you know, are also very significant. And yet this population of people that need it most, for the most part, have been prevented, have been not allowed to use it. And the physicians that care for that patient population have been disincentivized from using telehealth to see those patients with technology. That has got to go away. There's no other ways around it. You know, we're at the point where the humanitarian value of telehealth to that patient population must mean something. You know, we, we've got to understand that the way we throw the books and the economics of this are are making it a social injustice at this point in time. Um, and I think, you know, the, the transition of Medicare over COVID from saying we're only going to allow this and this and that to literally a new rule that says, hey, we're going to cover anything that's telehealth. You know, just use it. Don't even think about it. Go Go and use telehealth is going to be that change that we want. The question is how much of that is going to stick, you know, in the weeks to come. Yeah, and Roy, I was sharing with Joe, he knows that I've done a, a number of, uh, spent a lot of time in this policy area. I, I would put it into three buckets, and I'm very much in agreement with you, of who can use the technology and how can they use it, uh, what can they use it for, and so this gets into these policy issues around scope of practice, and, and where can they use it? Because a number of states and federal programs do have these barriers. You have to go to this specific location. You have to have a face-to-face -face visit before you can switch to telehealth with a provider. So I think you're exactly right as we're at this inflection point. These barriers are going to be called into question, and rightfully so, going forward to make sure that we understand if you have a pandemic or epidemic that doesn't respect state borders, no longer should we require a provider to have a license in every single state where they might see a, a, a patient. That's just unrealistic, and that just adds to the cost of care, for, quite frankly, going forward. Um, I'd be very curious, Roy, to talk a little bit about um, wh where we've gone here. We've talked a little bit about the technology changes. But where do you see telehealth being in five to ten years from now when it comes to the patient experience? Yeah, so I think... You know, the, the reality is that most most people today are familiar with telehealth for urgent care. You know, that, that's been a very good use case because, you know, it, it really is a very transactional kind of thing. It's almost like a blind date. You know, you pick one of the apps and you hit a button and a physician shows up and they don't know much about you and you don't know much about them. And the truth is you're not going to have a long, long lasting relationship. If you can deliver the ZPAC, you know, to the right patient appropriately, everybody seems to be happy. And I think, you know, we joke about it, but the truth is it was a very, very effective use case to flush the pipes. 
it was great to get people comfortable that that the telehealth can work not unlike by the way the way amazon for many years was all about selling books right it, it was also kind of a very good simple product that allowed amazon to understand credit cards and and billing and you know shipments and cancellations and returns and all of that kind of stuff but i think the reality is now that we are there that we really have to start thinking about telehealth as a competency that the clinician side of healthcare should use very liberally where they see appropriate. It's not going to be very different than, you know, we already understand that there are things that the physician can do for you in their primary care office that are okay, but if they, but if you need a, 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 a bypass operation, that's probably not going to happen at the primary care practice. There are things that are right for this care setting, I think is the term that is used in healthcare. There are things that are right for one care setting that are not right for the other, but they all coexist. And there is an understanding that patients are going to be, you know, presenting themselves to healthcare, a different care setting, depending on what it is that they need. The moment we move into a point where we understand that telehealth is a care setting, and it can be applied in conjunction, or it can be participating in the care of a patient in conjunction with other care settings. And that the care for one patient can literally be a combination of all of these together, um, we're going to be in a different place. And probably I can tell you that if you, if you have to kind of force me to paint a picture of what a consumer reality is gonna look like in, in 10 years, I would say the place where we're gonna see the biggest difference is in aging. Um, where, you know, we're all relatively young, but we're going to get to the point that we are, you know, we have healthcare needs that are significant. We all want to stay home as long as we can. This is our fortress. This is where we want to be. This is where we control the light switch rather than nurses coming in and out of our room. Um, and I think what you're going to see is the telehealth and related technologies are going to allow us to stay home in a dignified manner for much longer than it is today because a lot of the healthcare that we need, a lot of the surveillance that we need, a lot of the interventions that we need are going to be possible where we want to be. And that's a, I hope to grow old in that kind of world rather than in the world that we have today. Well, we're, we're coming close to the end of our conversation. So I, I, I always have to introduce this idea that there for all the good we're talking about, there must be some limits. Uh, you've covered a little bit about what, where, where the line might be between what telemedicine can do and what it can't do. Uh, share with our listeners, what, where do you see the limit? I mean, can it do everything? Can it be all uh, answers to all people or, or where do you see the line? So I think the line is gonna be different for different people. You know, and, and you know, sometimes analogies really work. It's a little bit like, uh, like online retail. Um, would you buy a car from start to finish online? It's a good question, right? I mean, and, and you know, five years ago, people said it's crazy to think that we're going to buy shoes online, right? I mean, you have to put your feet into them and see if they, if they feel comfortable. But the reality is that more shoes are sold online than anything else today. So I think the question is going to be the value proposition. And the value proposition, if you are, you know, to the point we just made, if you're an older patient, 
And the difference between adopting telehealth and not adopting telehealth is whether you can stay at home or have to go to a skilled nursing facility, you will be inclined to stretch the scope of what telehealth can do more so than for someone for the, to whom the difference between telehealth and not is going to be just a matter of a, you know, an hour convenience of getting out of the house or not getting out of the house. Um, and I think that the moment we start thinking about telehealth that way, that it serves people differently and it is warranted differently based on the value it brings rather than by what it can do, I think we're going to have a better understanding of how telehealth is going to work in 10 years. Okay, we're down to our final question. And I, of course, want to ask how you're doing uh, working remotely and how is Amwell uh, coping as a company with dispersions of management and all staff uh, has this been a challenge or has this made you as a firm even stronger than you were so you know we uh, i think the term is we eat our own dog food right i mean we are or we try our own dog food we actually uh, uh unrelated to covid about a year ago we made the decision to transition our entire operation such that every one of the employees of american well is going to have a a video console that connects us all together um, making, you know, blurring the line fairly significantly in terms of how we can collaborate in person and through technology. The bottom line is that that has become the difference between our ability to operate at the world where our offices across the country and internationally are closed. Um, and, you know, maybe that coupled with the sense of purpose that we're now in the business of saving lives rather than just in the business of modernizing healthcare has made our productivity in days of COVID increase in what feels like orders of magnitude, even though we were all relegated to the back of the kitchen table and the attics and the basements and have, you know, the pleasure of meeting members of the family and pets and, you know, see people in pajamas and bed hair days and all of that kind of stuff. But the productivity has become better than, than it's ever been. And I think it's a sense of purpose and a little bit of technology that really helped. Well, that's, that's a great way to wrap up the show. Um, I really appreciate you being on Hubwonk. Uh, this, I think, this conversation has, has helped our listeners understand a little more about the technology and a little bit uh, of view into the promise of this, uh, this exciting um, innovation. So thank you very much for being with us, Roy. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Josh. Until next time. Well, Josh, I had no idea how far telemedicine had come and, and how uh, much of this uh, global pandemic has been a catalyst for the uptake of this technology. Uh, what did you find most interesting or surprising about Roy's remarks? You know, I, I think it was just how quickly this has spread and how some of those barriers out of necessity have fallen, both at the federal and state level. You know, locally here, Governor Baker, uh, with some encouragement from Pioneer and some others in the space, has waived a number of these uh, requirements in response to the pandemic. And I do hope that uh, legislators and the governor take a hard look at going forward, making those permanent. So we have some more patient-oriented um, systems, as he described, whether it's at end of life or whether it's a, a, somebody, a college student, who doesn't want to leave their job um, to help pay for school to be able to go when they could really use telehealth going forward. I, I think that's really encouraging to me going forward. I, I think what we didn't get into the conversation, Joe, is, is there's a huge economic benefit here to the country 
So for small employers, whether it's people missing less work um, so they or lost income for those workers, I, I think that's a big one. And I do hope that there's a couple policy, sticky policy areas I wanted to just mention as we wrap up our conversation here that policymakers need to be aware of is that mandates can get involved in telehealth. And so some states have payment parity mandates and coverage mandates saying that you have to cover all services and you have to pay the same amount for a telehealth visit as you do for an in-office visit. And I think, unfortunately, those sorts of mandates will prove to be another barrier and will spike uh, spending and therefore people will be paying more for, for the services. So I'm hoping that those sorts of barriers don't get put in place. It's an issue here in Massachusetts in the conversation. People want to mandate a higher reimbursement rate, but I don't think it, I think it ignores the efficiency that comes through telehealth and that it doesn't have to be delivered in a, a place with high administrative overhead. Very good point. Uh, I'd like to see that uh, this technology seems to benefit everyone. Certainly those patients who are either elderly and can't get to the hospital, or as he kept mentioning, North Dakota. I don't know a lot of sick people in North Dakota, I suppose. Um, but great benefit to patients. Of course, doctors can now uh, reach more people. Um, and as you say, it's a, it's a cheaper technology. You don't have to get to the hospital. Uh, I hope we can adapt well and realize those savings in our healthcare system, which is a very expensive system. So there's a lot to like about telehealth and telemedicine. I'm glad we covered all the bases. I think Roy was a wonderful uh, a spokesperson for, for the field. Uh, and I want to thank you for joining us, Josh. You are a great co-host and uh, your expertise and the expertise of your research at Pioneer Institute is, is a wonderful resource. Thank you. Thanks for having me on again, Joe. This has been Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. If you enjoyed the show, there are three ways to support us. You can give us a five-star rating, you can subscribe to the show, and you can share it with others. I welcome your comments and suggestions if you email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. This podcast is from Pioneer Institute. Please consider becoming a member and supporting our research at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for another episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.